John 3, 16, verses 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, we do proclaim and confess and believe with every fiber of our being that there is salvation in your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, the lost are found and the broken are healed and the guilty are pardoned. That there is life in the name of Jesus. That's our great confession. We've come to receive that life as it's given to us in your word. So may we do that this morning. Tune our ears to hear your small voice. Prepare our hearts to receive what it is you want us to receive. Jesus Christ, this is your time. May you use it as you see fit. In your precious name we pray, amen. When I was in school, high school and college mostly, I had classmates who would use spark notes. Uh, if you don't know what spark notes are, they're basically short summaries that um, uh, are written usually over books you might read in an English class, so like Moby Dick, these kind of books. And oftentimes they're, they're professors or PhDs who write these, so they're, they're quite good, and it'll have kind of a summary of what's the plot in a page, what are the main characters, what are the major themes. And so if you, you know, get a good spark notes, you can pass off as if you have read a book and come across quite knowledgeable because there's this short summary for you. I never use spark notes. Not just because of the moral questionability of using spark notes, but there's just something in me that I, I feel this masochistic need that I need to actually read what I've been assigned and labor through it on my own. And so for instance, when I was in college, I took a class on a, an Austrian philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein and he's notorious for being incomprehensible. Uh, when you're 19, you think it's because you're stupid, and now I'm old enough to just say, no, he's, he's incomprehensible. It's bad when one of the titles of the books is in Latin. That's when you know this is gonna be a rough, rough ride. So again, there's me, somewhat of a masochist. I read all the books we're supposed to, three different books by this guy, secondary sources to try to explain what this means. I get to the end of it, I have no idea what it means. Meanwhile, I had a friend, actually a mutual friend of Mark and I, who took the class with me, she didn't read a single book. She just read the spark notes, and she got a better grade than I did. And that's when I knew life was unfair. <laughs> if you took the Bible and you, and you put it into the format of like a typical novel, right, so same type font as a novel, same page size, it would be a novel of about two to 3,000 pages. That, I've never read a novel that long. That is a long novel. How do you distill that into a spark notes? Even Christians who've been going to church for their whole lives can struggle to say in a simple sentence when you put it to them, what is this all about? Well, if there was a verse that was a kind of spark notes of the Bible, it'd be John 3.16. It's one of the reasons why everyone knows it, even if 
if you don't go to church, even if you're not a Christian, you know John 3.16. And there's a reason, it's because it really does, in a way, summarize what is so central about Christianity. And on Resurrection Sunday, what better to do than to take a morning and just go over again, what is this that we're doing here? What is this all about? Our outline for us this morning is going to be first point, our problem. Second point, God's answer to our problem. And the third point is our response. So the first point, our problem. Not to quote another philosopher, but the transcendental philosopher Henry David Thoreau one time wrote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I'm going to say it again. That's a profound statement. The mass of men, that means most people, lead lives of quiet desperation. If you walk out this afternoon in the city of Louisville, especially a beautiful sunny afternoon like today's supposed to be, you see a lot of people outside, smiling, seeming very contented, very happy, maybe very successful. But I agree with Throw. I think that the vast majority of people lead lives of quiet desperation. It's quiet. You're not going to see it on the outside unless you get up close, unless you get to know the person. But there's a desperation that pervades their lives. I saw this pretty vividly when I ministered to college students in Panama City Beach for a few spring breaks. Because kids come to Panama City over spring break to party, to have as much fun as they can. And that, from the outside, looks like that's what this is all about. But if you just listen to some of them, they would start pouring out their stories, and you just had no idea what was going on inside these students' lives. Remember, there's a group of four or five students, and again, they're just being loud, obnoxious, and, um, and they're probably slightly inebriated. And, and I was talking to them, and one of them all of a sudden shared, my dad committed suicide two months ago. And these are a bunch of like frat bros, okay? And they all start crying. 20-year-old college students. And this one kid, his dad had committed suicide. These are his best friends who knew his dad. And yeah, they'd come to party. They'd also come to forget and to try to cover that wound in their hearts. But on the outside, they're just a bunch of frat bros looking to party. I remember meeting another young man, he's probably 25, who had just returned from a tour in Afghanistan. And, and he couldn't handle what he had experienced. And so he was just trying to numb himself. And he went into a club, and he just got hammered drunk, passed out drunk. His friends all left him there, and the bouncers eventually literally kicked him out of the club, and that's where we found him. On the outside, it looks like he's just wanting to party hard. But on the inside, there's a quiet desperation. When we get to John 3.16, we get to God's answer to our problem, but the problem is assumed. Because the gospel begins with a simple fact that we are not okay. There's a quiet desperation in the heart of every human, and the reason is because we're lost. Jesus Christ came to earth, and it says in Luke 19 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's a pretty unnerving statement to describe someone as lost. Uh, if you ever lost as a little kid, you don't forget that experience quickly. One of the earliest memories I have is as a three-year-old being lost, the feeling of just terror. I don't know where I am. I don't know where my parents are. I feel so vulnerable. I don't know where my help is going to come from. Jesus says we're lost. 
And to be lost as an adult looks different. It's not as easily solved. It's not as simple as our parents finding us when we're lost in the grind of a career or we're lost in implosions of relationship after relationship after relationship. And we have a desperation. But the Christian gospel explains that the reason we feel this quiet desperation, the reason that we're lost, this gets at our problem, is for two reasons, really basically. The reason why we are lost, the reason why we live lives of quiet desperation is one, we don't know God, and two, our works are evil. First point, we don't know God. John begins his gospel in chapter one, just two chapters before John 3.16, saying this, he says, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't know him. Jesus is the creator of the world, but the world didn't know him. We we don't know God. And here's the thing, if we don't know the one who created us, who designed us for him, if we don't know our place within the cosmos and the universe, that's what it means to be lost. And we can have all the good things in life. We can have all of the pleasures and comforts that money can buy. We can have a family that loves us. We can have a future that looks bright. But if we don't know our place in the universe, if we don't know the God who created us, what use is all of that stuff? We're lost. But secondly, and here Jesus is pretty explicit, it's not just that we've lost our way. It's not just that we don't know God but it's also that our works are evil. John 3.19, this is what Jesus says. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, Jesus is not saying that everything we do is evil. That would be patently false. Sometimes humans do good things. What Jesus is saying is that when we do things that are evil, they're genuine reflections of our hearts. What's, what's our tendency when, when, you know, when I get angry and say something I shouldn't say? I'm, I'm tired. I was having a hard day. I was afraid. I rationalize it. This, is, this isn't me. This action where Jesus says, no, 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 no. We do angry things because we're angry people. We ignore the needs of others because we're selfish people. Our works are evil. As Jesus himself said, no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the most desperate aspect of our situation is not evil and terror out there, it's that the evil and the terror are inside us. This is our problem. We live lives of quiet desperation, desperately trying to hide our sense that we're so lost because we don't know God because our very hearts are diseased. That's the problem. Again, this is what John 3.16 assumes. Unless we have that, we'll never understand God's answer to our problem. But here's we get to our second point, which is God's answer. And this is John 3.16.17. And follow along as I read it for us again. And let these words land like the morning dew. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The mass of men leave lives of quiet desperation because we're lost and our works are evil. And what is the what is the ray of light coming up after a very dark night is this? For God so loved the world. For God so loved Mike Kubinek. For God so loved you. You know, one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to be loved. Uh, we like to talk a lot about toleration in our country, but no one wants to be tolerated. We want to be known and loved. The first great answer that God gives to us in our diseased hearts and our deep problem is, hey, God loves you. The almighty, omnipotent creator of the universe loves you. But we shouldn't sentimentalize this. Because it says, for God so loved the world, and we hear this, and, and our tendency is to say, well, of course he does, because it aligns so well with our cultural values, like we're supposed to be good and kind and love people, so of course God, if he's God, is going to love people. And when we say God loved the world, oftentimes that world that we picture is like the world at its best. It's like, you know, various ethnicities living in diverse harmo- harmony and peace and cooperation, singing kumbaya, and we're like, yes, of course God loves that. But let me just read it again. It doesn't say God loves the world that we wish we were or God loves the world that it's best. It says God loved the world. And when John uses the word world, he's referring specifically to those who are lost and whose works are evil. Again, verse 19. This is the judgment that light came into the world. Who's the world? For people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Since God loved the world, it means he loves those who, whose works are evil. When it says God so loved the world, it means God loved the world that, in, that invades another country, kills tens of thousands of people, misplaces millions because of the ego trip of a leader. It says God loves the world, it means God loves the world that measures the value of the human life by dollars. God loves the world that lives in luxury while their neighbors literally starve in poverty. God loves the world that is bored and apathetic about his very existence because they're so busy pursuing pretty but temporary things. God and Jesus denounced our evil, and that's why we killed him, by the way. But he loved us. He loved the world. You know, it's funny, Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to improve our self-esteem. And there's probably not much what I'm saying right now that's making you think I'm pretty awesome. I'm sorry if that's what you came for. You're never going to hear that at Vine Street. He didn't come to help us forgive ourselves, whatever that might mean, to make us feel better about our actions. That'd be like going up to an alcoholic and saying, hey, you just need to love yourself. You need to love your alcoholism. You need to embrace every part of yourself. No one would do that. Alcoholism is a disease, and if you don't kill it, it'll kill you and your family. There's nothing loving about that. And so Jesus Christ came to expose how deep our sin goes, that we're diseased at the core. We're way worse off than we thought, but oh, brothers and sisters, God loved the world. He didn't love you at your best. He loved you at your worst. Anyone can love you at your best. Am I right? It's called a fair
your friend, but God loved us. Get this, God's seen every moment you've ever lived. He's seen everything I've ever done. All the things I wish I could forget, all the things you wish you could forget, and at that moment, he loved you. For God so loved the world. That's the first answer God gives to our problem. That's the first song that comes into our nightmare. God loves you. But the second is how God loved us. It says, for God so loved the world, and what that literally is saying is that God loved the world in this way. This is what God's love looked like. It wasn't just some kind of, you know, well-wishing, some kind of favorful feeling he feels for us, but God did something for us. This is how God loved us. God loved us in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his son for us. Now, what, is, what was he giving his son for? Well, he's giving his son to come and die on a cross to take our punishment for our sin. God loved us in the way we needed it most by taking the judgment that our sin rightfully deserves. We, sociologists will talk about how we live in a very therapeutic culture. Everything is given medical terms, right? Uh, what's wrong with people? We're broken, we need healing. Uh, we, we need better mental health. We need to worry about our emotions. And, and there's truth in all that, right? God created us with emotions. But our deepest need is not emotional well-being or self- psychological help. Our deepest need is that we've sinned and we need to be forgiven. We stand under the, the judgment of God. We've broken the law. Not the law of the United States, as serious as that might be. We've broken the eternal law of God. And when the script of our life, the end of time, is read out, God won't condemn us. Our own actions will condemn us. Romans 3.19 says, one day every mouth will be stopped. And I want us to picture this right. That doesn't mean that God will, like, bully us. He could. He's God. No, what it means is that when we stand before the holy God, our own actions will silence our mouths. We'll have nothing to say in defense. Yes, I deserve to be condemned. I have no defense to make. Our greatest need is forgiveness from the God against whom we've sinned. And so God loved us in the way we needed it most. He gave up his own son. God was willing for his own son, his precious beloved son, to come and die for you. If you ever wonder, does God love you? Look at Jesus, who came into a world that would reject him, who would lay down his life for you. The Bible says that God is, or sorry, that Jesus is God made visible, right? We, we can't see God, he's a spirit. We believe in him by faith. We see the works he's done. We can know who he is by his word, but we never see him. But in Jesus Christ, God became a man. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. And who is Jesus? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Christ laid his life down for you. That's the proof. God loves you. And here's the thing. The way that God loved us was not just forgiving us, although that would be enough. 
if all God did was forgive us of the debt that we owe, that would have been enough. But he came to give us new life. God loved you in this way. Gave his only son so whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now let's get the elephant out of the room. When we hear eternal life, we picture heaven, and we picture heaven, we picture sitting on clouds playing harps, and none of that is accurate. Yes, of course it's referring to heaven, but it's referring to so much more. It's referring to life now. When Jesus Christ died, no, let me, me, sorry, let me back up. It's life now. It's life with God. It's power from God to change, um, to become a new person. That's a deep desire we all have. If we could add up all the money we spend in our culture on trying to improve ourselves, you know, like makeup, haircuts, gyms. Very few people go to a gym because they actually enjoy the experience, okay? Let's all be honest. Diets, I mean, come on. Like, diet food is the worst thing. Surgery, I mean, can we keep going? Like, I, I'm guessing it would be in the billions of dollars, depending on how you measured it, what we do to try to improve ourselves, to make ourselves better, to be new people. But at the end of the day, what's the result after a diet or whatever? Maybe you're 20 pounds less. Maybe you have a new haircut. But you're still the same person. Your heart is still the same quietly desperate lost heart. Jesus Christ offers eternal life. He died to purchase our forgiveness so that God could be just and love. But then he rose from the grave. That's the significance of the resurrection. It doesn't just prove that he forgives us, but it proved that he defeated death. And so when he calls us to come to him, it's to be forgiven, but it's also to experience new life. He doesn't come and put a band-aid solution on our deepest problems. He comes and gives us a total renovation of the heart, recreation, new people. That's why Jesus says, come to him. I became a Christian when I was 14. That's when I accepted God's love in Jesus Christ and his death for me. I was an angry insecure adolescent boy. And in Jesus, I found a Lord who took away my anger and he took away my insecurity. Even more than that, I found a friend, the closest friend I could ever have, a refuge and a hiding place. And you can ask my family, right? We can, I can lie to you all day long. You wouldn't know. But you can ask my family, you can ask my wife. I'm not perfect. Absolutely not but I'm also not who I once was. I am no longer that angry and that insecure little boy because Christ has changed me. He's recreated me. He continues to recreate me. This is the Jesus that is in our presence this morning. The forgiveness that Jesus purchased for us at the cost of his own life, leads to life, and life that never ends. So again, humanity is not okay. We're not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're lost, and our works are evil. But God loved the world. He loved us at our worst, and he loved us in the way we needed most, by sending his son to die for us, to pay the debt we owe him, 
to give us life that never ends. So that's our second point, God's answer. Third point, our response. Where are you this morning? Uh, If you were with us last week, we talked about how Christianity is not first and foremost a moral framework of how we ought to act. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. A lot of people think that, but it's not true. Christianity has do's and don'ts, but that's not what it's mostly about. Christianity is first and foremost an announcement of what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's an announcement that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And when there's an announcement, we have to respond. The response might be, we accept Christ, and we repent and turn away from our sin, and we accept the forgiveness he bought. Or maybe it's, we reject it. Or maybe we just ignore it. Either way, we have to respond. Jesus is clear that God's love is universal. God loved the world. No qualifications. He made you. He loves you. He's counted the hairs in your head. God loved the world. But John is also equally clear that salvation is not universal. The offer of eternal life goes out to everyone, but we have to actually respond and receive it and repent and turn to Christ. We have to admit our sin in need of salvation and accept this forgiveness. And, and if you don't believe in Jesus, um, but you're interested in I, I, you know, I come talk to me. As a Christian, there's nothing more I like doing than talking about the life I've found in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, I'll remind you this gospel is your life. It's your very life. For God so loved you. And he hasn't changed his mind about you, by the way. Uh, You may be in a season where you don't really like yourself a whole lot. Maybe you've changed your mind about yourself. God hasn't. What he spoke 2,000 years ago, for God so loved, fill in your name. It's just as true today as it was back then. He hasn't given up on you. He's at work in your life. And if you could see the tapestry that he's weaving through the circumstances and season and events that he's brought into your life, if you could see what he is creating in you by his grace and his mercies, you would not be able to stop praising him for his goodness to you. God has not given up on you. God loved the world, he loved you, and he continues to love you. And he will not abandon you, ever, no matter what. God has a wonderful plan for your life. The statement is true. It may not mean wealth and health and affluence, but he has a wonderful plan for your life. And what it is is that God wants to draw you close to himself, to teach you deeper levels of his grace and his mercy and his love. He wants you to know him as a child trusts their mom. He wants to show his heart to you, to refine you and make you more like his son. And he'll do it because he's a God who loved the world. You and I, we were dead in our sins. But Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, may your gospel be powerful in our midst. We love you for you came to us when we were lost and you found us. 
and you stepped into our dirt and our filth and you cleansed us. And we're free. Free from all the shame and guilt we bear with us. We're free to know you, to walk with you in joy and peace. We're free of the things of this world. We don't need to find our identity in what we do and what we have. We don't need the approval of others. We're freed from all of that. We're freed so we might run after you with abandon. We praise you this morning. Hallelujah. Amen.